Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're bringing you our second episode on the 19th century Irish writer Oscar Wilde. Just before we get started on this episode, I wanted to mention our sponsor for today, Studio Sweden. Studio make quality headphones, which are both beautiful and have excellent sound quality. And I would encourage you to check out their website at studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com. And if you like their product, you can use the promo code QueerAsFact, all one word, to get 15% off there. We do have some content warnings for this episode. We're going to discuss a rather unhealthy relationship. We're also going to discuss power imbalance in relationships due to age and class difference. This episode also contains a lot of stereotypical homophobia to the extent of legal prosecution and then state-sanctioned abuse in prison. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to check out our other episodes. Also, if you did not know from the title and everything that we have said, this is the second part of a two-part episode on Ask Wild. You can listen to just this episode without listening to the previous episode, and it'll more or less make sense to you, I think. But if you haven't listened to that and you would like to, go ahead and do it now. If you can't be bothered doing that, I'll give a quick synopsis of what happened. We covered Oscar Wilde's early life, including his time at boarding school and at Oxford, uh, in which it became obvious that he was both gay and too clever for anyone's good. After Oxford, he went to London, where he established himself as a celebrity on sheer force of personality, and as a result of that, ended up touring around America as a lecturer. He was doing this as the face of the aesthetic movement, which was an artistic movement dedicated to the principle of art for art's sake, contrary to the contemporary understanding of art having to have a moral purpose. While he was in America, he spent an intimate afternoon with Walt Whitman before returning home to marry Constance Lloyd, as well as having his first, definitely for sure, confirmed gay relationship with Robbie Ross. We also, at the end of last episode, got into the beginning of his success as a writer with the publication of The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was read very enthusiastically by a particular undergrad at Oxford who we're going to start talking about now. One last thing before we start the episode proper, there is very much a storm going on outside sort of brewing, which is very atmospheric, but probably not actually a good podcast experience. So if you can hear that, we apologize. So this young man who is one day going to read the picture of Dorian Gray 14 times straight at Oxford is called Alfred Douglas, and he was born on the 20th of October, 1870. He had a very close relationship with his mother who adored him and gave him the nickname Bosie in childhood, which is to stick with him for life. Alfred Douglas goes off to boarding school, as young men do in this society, and we're able to be a lot surer of his homosexuality there than of Oscar's. He wrote in his autobiography, published in 1929, quote, I had many fine friendships, perfectly normal, wholesome, and not in the least sentimental. I had other friendships which were sentimental and passionate, but perfectly pure and innocent. I had others, again, which were neither pure nor innocent. 
But if it is to be assumed from this that I was abnormal or degenerate or exceptionally wicked, then it must also be assumed that at least 90% of my contemporaries at Winchester and Oxford were the same. Cool. So everyone at Oxford is gay. This is my understanding of it from this podcast. I just liked how that was really presented as like it would be like a nice graph where it was like pure, tick, sentimental. (laughs) (laughs) We can map this out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I probably shouldn't proceed without like acknowledging that obviously Alfred Douglas has some stuff to work through regarding homosexuality later in his life, which is perhaps not surprising. He's around in the Victorian period. Yeah. After boarding school he does go to Oxford and he makes sort of like a vague attempt at studying classics there. <laughs> As is obligatory. Yeah. He yeah. definitely doesn't ruin his eyesight though. He's just sort of like nominally studying classics. And while he's there he's introduced to the picture of Dorian Gray by his friend Lionel Johnson and as we've mentioned, he loves it. He reads it 14 times in a row. And he's introduced to its author in June of 1891 when Lionel brings him to the Wilds' home. We don't actually know a lot about this first meeting. We know it wasn't a long one, and they seem to have had a favourable first impression of each other generally. Oscar gives Alfred a fancy copy of Dorian Gray, and he offers to tutor him in classics, which he is near failing because he doesn't study Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Following this meeting, Alfred recounts that Oscar pursued him intensely, and after six months, finally succeeded in seducing him. Mm-hmm. Oscar instead says that they were acquaintances for about six months and then Alfred invited him up to Oxford and it's at that point that their relationship starts to get going. Okay. Alfred sort of writes his account after the fact and as may have been apparent from the quote about his friendships being wicked and things like that, it's sort of at a time of his life when he's not really like feeling all that good about all of the gay sexies to do so you know we need to be aware that everyone has like agendas and is trying to like pin things on other people little times and stuff but in any case like they get together about six months after they meet one of the biographers Barbara Belford said that Oscar was essentially in the habit of like flirting with everyone so I would maybe Bosey took him to be like more into him than he was at that point I believe that about Oscar based on what we've heard about Oscar but yeah in any case Bosey invites him up to Oxford because he is being blackmailed over a letter and Oscar goes up there, spends the weekend in Oxford and returns to London and hands it over to his solicitor and the letter is retrieved for £100. Do we know what's in the letter? Uh, gay stuff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's also worth saying that £100 is quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. I did the traditional queerest fact dodgy Google search for like, how much is this in today's money? And I got like wildly different answers. <laughs> okay. So one source told me £9,000 in today's money and one told me £12,000 and then okay. I was like alright it's a lot of money let's just stop this now yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it's like a decent chunk of money by the summer of 1892 they've continued their acquaintance and Oscar is in love with Alfred Douglas is Alfred in love with Oscar? yeah they're they're okay. in it. They're, They're in right it now. Yeah. Yeah. Much okay. to the detriment of, like, everyone involved. <laughs> to illustrate this point of, like, how far they've come in their feelings for each other, another one of Oscar's biographers, Richard Ellman, quotes two different dedications that Oscar wrote in books to Bosie. The first is in the fancy copy of Dorian Gray, mm-hmm. and it reads, Alfred Douglas, from his friend who wrote this book, July 1891, Oscar. That's fairly innocuous. Yes. His next inscription from the time when they've started seeing each other reads, from Oscar to the guilt-mailed boy at Oxford in the heart of June, Oscar Wilde. All right. By early... Sorry, say that again. From Oscar to the guilt-mailed boy 
boy at Oxford in the heart of June, Oscar Wilde. Okay, I didn't get guilt mailed. I was yeah. just trying to make a word out of it. Guilt mailed. So a lot of the words that Oscar Wilde uses to describe young men that he finds beautiful or to like write love letters to young men are really fixated on this kind of imagery of like goldenness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's like very into the kind of like peaches and cream complexion and kind of like blonde hair yeah. of the like sort of English beauty variety. And that's exactly what Alfred Douglas looks like. So how convenient. Yes. By early 1893, he's writing even more evocative letters. I'm going to quote one to you now. I'm keen to see how this can get more evocative than guilt mailed. You've read Purple Prose in your life, Alice. True. It begins, my own boy. Your sonnet is quite lovely. I read something in which someone was like, this sonnet wasn't lovely at all. It is in fact a study of what not to do in poetry so perfect that it could be taught in English class or something. Wow. And I was like, oh! Do you have this sonnet? No, I don't. I didn't include any of his poetry because it's boring and it kind of sucks. Okay. Um, <laughs> but. Your sonnet is quite lovely and it is a marvel that those red rose leaf lips of yours should have been made no less for the music of song than for madness of kisses. Your slim gilt soul walks between passion and poetry. And Ohiosynthus whom Apollo loved so madly was you in Greek days. Wow, well, okay, yep. <laughs> yeah. Did that deliver enough? Yes, yeah, that delivered. <laughs> yeah, yes. That was too much, frankly. Like, sometimes we read, like, love letters on this podcast and we're like, oh, that was so sweet. That was so nice. That one was too much. Okay. <laughs> I see what you mean in that, like, when you go that far into purple prose, it feels very, like, more of a writing exercise than an expression of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. that I'm doubting that they did the, like, wild rose leaf lips kisses. <laughs> but like, I'm sure those occur. Oscar's a very performative man. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And this, as all things he does, is very performative. Interestingly enough, this letter will come up again in a legal context. Oh. And he does claim in it that, like, oh, this wasn't a love letter. It was just, like, a prose poem that I wrote and planned to publish later. And I was just showing Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure you were. Sure you were. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what the jury says. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes to jail. <laughs> yeah. Alfred is, as this level of purpleness in the prose indicates, the most important love of Oscar's life, which is rather unfortunate because he's a terrible human being. I very much expected you, once you said, as the level of prose indicates, to finish with the most beautiful man in the world. No, we've met the most beautiful man in the world last week. It was John Gray. Oh, no, Alfred Douglas is hotter than John Gray. So according to who is Alfred hotter than John Gray? Like Oscar's bank account, given that he bankrupts himself over him, I guess. Let me tell you about how he's awful. Okay, Okay. tell me how bad a person he is. Any biography you read will just be like, he just kind of (laughs) sucks. Wow, okay. He's very vain, he's spoiled, he's reckless, he has a very quick temper. He and Oscar begin a very tumultuous and emotionally exhausting on-again, off-again relationship. Oh dear. Yes. There are times when they're really happy, they're passionate, they're in love, and then Rosie will throw some massive tantrum about nothing and they will part for a while. And Oscar will be like, I can't do this anymore. I need this person out of my life. And then he'll be like, oh, but do I? And cave. Alfred knew as well that he could rely on Oscar to forgive him, Mm -hmm. essentially, whatever he did. Oscar described this trust, like this understanding that he would always be forgiven as, quote, perhaps the thing in you that I always really liked 
manifest perhaps the best thing in you two like. So basically <laughs> what we've got in this relationship is that on Oscar's side, he's like, wow, Alfred, so beautiful. And on Alfred's side, he's like, wow, Oscar, such a pushover. Like, I think those are both elements of this relationship, but I don't want us to kind of, like, boil this down to... It's not just that Alfred is exploiting Oscar. They are in a loving relationship. Yeah, like, yeah. like they they have a lot of feelings for each other, perhaps the most amount of feelings for each other. And I think things like that is more complicated than just, like, I can do whatever I want. Like, it's to do with him needing to feel, like, unconditionally loved. Yeah. And things like that. And, like, you know, he does this by being awful. (laughs) On that note, another thing about Alfred Douglas is that he has these enormously expensive tastes. And, like, Oscar himself has really expensive tastes and he's in debt for his, like, entire life. But mm-hmm. Bosey, like, goes to the next level and kind of expects Oscar to, like, endlessly support his taste for fancy champagne and hotel rooms and things like that. And Oscar, like, can't handle that financially. Like, it's yeah. just not within his means yep. to the extent that Bosey wants it. And Richard Elman understands this as a way for Bosey to kind of essentially prove to himself that Oscar loved him and was committed to him. Bosey wrote in a letter to Robbie Ross later, quote, I remember very well the sweetness of asking Oscar for money. It was a sweet humiliation and exquisite pleasure to both of us. So there's these kind of, like, weird layers of them, like, being very, like, dependent on each other and kind of, like, wanting to be necessary to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. In a way that isn't really healthy but is very intense. Yeah. So just, like, while we're talking about things that (laughs) Alfred did, Oscar had written a play called Salome and he'd written it in French. And he, and he asked, wrote a play in French? He wrote it in French. He was fluent in French. Okay, Oscar. Yeah. Okay. He's very well educated. Like, yeah. Ostentatiously so. <laughs> um, and he wants it translated into English, but he doesn't have the time. And so he asks Alfred to translate it into English, which is a terrible idea. Because first of all, Bosey fancies himself a writer, but he's not very good at it. And second of all, his French is like really bad. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> Incidentally, while we're mentioning his poetry, uh, his most famous line comes from his poem Two Loves, and it reads, I'm the love that dare not speak its name, which is very, very famous oh. and may come up oh. again later. I didn't know that he wrote that. He did, he wrote it. So returning to how bad his French is, uh, he translated a phrase as one must not look at mirrors instead of what it actually meant which is one should look only at mirrors you know that's okay, the so level we're at like he's that bad at French yeah. yeah and not only that but he was very unwilling to be criticized about anything that he ever did wrong and so he declared when Oscar pointed out all of these errors and sort of said we need to revise this a great deal that if there were any faults it was in the original not in the translation and so there's this whole like drawn out argument over this and in the end, Oscar ends up redoing a lot of it, but he dedicates it to Alfred as the translator. By this time, Bosey has left Oxford. Uh, he didn't graduate because he didn't bother showing up for his exams. And so he's kind of like hanging around and not really doing a great deal and just sort of having a good time on Oscar's money. Okay. And they have this big quarrel and he ends up going to Cairo for a few months. And Oscar is quite relieved that he's not near him mm-hmm. and he doesn't answer any of his letters. And Alfred gets incredibly desperate in trying to get him to write back to him mm-hmm. like he gets oscar's wife to write oscar a letter on his behalf and things wow, like that okay, yeah. yeah 
And Oscar sends him a telegram saying, Time heals every wound, but for many months to come, I will neither write to you nor see you. And a week later, they are dining together in Paris. So this is kind of how it is. So that's how this goes, yeah. One of the things that Alfred likes to spend money on is having sex with young working class men. This is like a big preoccupation of his. And he introduces Oscar to this world. And from this point on, Oscar also has a lot of casual sex with young working class men for money. So Alfred introduces him to another man called Alfred, who we're just not going to talk about that much because of his inconvenient first name, <laughs> who arranges young men for them to meet and, you know, he'll arrange mm-hmm. them to meet at a restaurant and then they'll, like, be bored a really nice dinner and then they'll go back to a really nice hotel room and then they'll have sex with Oscar or Bozy or yeah. both conceivably. And, yeah, a lot of money goes into this. Oscar gives them, like, just really nice champagne and is especially fond of giving them like silver cigarette cases that are really like a nicer gift than is sort of expected in this scenario. Is the working classness of these men like a particular preoccupation of his or is that just the kind of man that he can get? I'm not entirely sure. I think like the fact that, you know, that's what's convenient Mm. is a factor. Like I definitely saw it stated that he had a fascination with working class young men in a way that implied that it was their like sort of element of them being a bit like rough trade that he was into but I don't have any like proof of that like I don't know how you establish that yeah yeah you know Mm -hmm. I mean I think the key part is more that they're kind of like late teens early 20s maybe ish okay yeah and Mm -hmm. Oscar's in his like late 30s at this point so he's definitely an adult man yeah and like regardless of where they fall in that age range that's a large gap and that's a large power imbalance because of that whilst I was reading this the thought going through my head was like alright but like how old like what what is this and you know no one was like conveniently being like a table of the young men we know Oscar Wilde had (laughs) sex with and their ages and so I started trying to look into it and then I felt really weird about that as my kind of like measure of how I felt about this part of why I was looking for the specific age is because Alright, so like Oscar is going to prison for the sex he's having here. Yeah. Like that's not a spoiler, this is the premise. And recently, the laws under which he was convicted, they were overturned a while ago, but recently the men who were convicted under them were officially pardoned by the British government. So this included a lot of men, like thousands of men who were still alive, and also Alan Turing, who we'll do an episode on at some point, and Oscar Wilde. Like I couldn't find out really exactly what happened. Like there was really a weird small amount of press I could find on this frankly where it was suggested that he wouldn't be fully pardoned because like one of the boys that he had sex with was under the age of 16 which is the current age of consent yeah so he would still be breaking a different law basically yeah so that's still illegal so they're not going to pardon him for it yeah and I was like oh okay so like how old are these people and then I was like I mean I'm not going to go and try and check if they're over 16 or not and then you're not going to be like oh it's fine yeah and it it made me feel weird because like legally in the eyes of the government in the country he's from if they'd all been 16 he would be pardoned and legally speaking it would be fine and that's no good Mm, yeah Yeah. Um, and so I kind of just concluded like I'm definitely getting the 
like feel that they're kind of like mid to late teens, maybe a little bit older in some cases. Mm-hmm. And there's also the fact that like he's specifically sort of interested in younger men, like as younger men. You know, it's a thing where like we could sit here and have an argument about like oh, 16 or 18 or 15 or whatever, but like they're really young and the power imbalance or the, like the age gap is like it's a feature, not a bug. And that's really uncomfortable. And yeah. that's not something I feel we need to like have an argument about. Like, I feel like we're pretty much on the same page there. What we need to, I guess, talk about is what we do with that now we have it. Yeah. So in my experience, there's kind of like two main reactions to the whole situation. And that's either kind of like ignoring it or being very outraged and being like, we should never speak about him or produce any of his plays ever again. You know, so I'm like, sure, for example, that as we continue to post stuff about Oscar Wilde on social media, we'll get comments of like, cool, but like, he was a pedophile. So why are you doing this? Which I don't really think is a But on the other side, you have scholars who, for the most part, seem to just kind of like never talk about it. Kind of ignore it. So you have Richard Elman, who the quote of his that stuck out to me about this was when he says, What seems to characterize all Wilde's affairs is that he got to know the boys as individuals, treated them handsomely, allowed them to refuse his attentions without becoming rancorous, and did not corrupt them. What would he consider corrupting? I don't know. So, like, the reason why he's talking about that is because the trial goes to great lengths to portray Wilde as a corrupter of youth, and so he's responding to this kind of constructed narrative as, like, Oscar Wilde is this, like, depraved sex maniac hunting after young boys with his own constructed image him treating them well yeah this just like very innocuous kind of like very consensual sort of thing unfortunately when you're getting into the nitty gritty of people's sex lives over a hundred years ago Mm. and when their sex lives were illegal like knowing exactly how specific encounters are kind of characterized is just beyond us yeah yeah you know like it just is and the first like wave or so of gay historians in my experience also really take issue with not only Oscar Wilde but with like any queer historical man who had sex with younger men or boys Mm -hmm. like it's something that tends to not really be looked at in too much detail yeah I understand that if you're in a place with learning about queer history which you know society was several decades ago or like some people are where they've just kind of discovered queer figures they can see as role models that if you start finding and talking about Oscar Wilde you don't want to immediately be like oh but he was a pedophile and dismiss one of the kind of main big queer figures that we talk Mm. about and so therefore they want to kind of brush this away and not deal with it but on the other hand I don't think we can just not deal with it. I also think that we need to be careful not to kind of like simplify this whole situation down too much to dislike, yeah, Oscar Wilde is in a position of power over like Alfred Douglas and all of these young men without discounting the power dynamic at play with Oscar Wilde being like older and of a higher social status than all of these young men they're paying to have sex with and older than Alfred Douglas. There's also a lot of other power dynamics that I find sort of tend to get left by the wayside in trying to make that point clear. So, like, we've talked a little bit about the weird, intense mess that is his relationship with Alfred Douglas Mm -hmm. and trying to portray, as his prosecutors did, him as a corrupter of Alfred Douglas. 
like grossly oversimplifies that relationship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and doesn't really like make sense for what it was. Yeah. And you can say that without like being like, and therefore the fact that he was like 15 years older or whatever, then Alfred Douglas is uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to do what Elman did and pretend that his encounters with these like working class men were just like good natured, jolly, consensual times. But you do need to also just like include in your picture of it the fact that they also have a great deal of power over Oscar and Bozy in the repeated blackmail yeah. that they have mm-hmm. to deal with. Oscar later describes this as feasting with panthers in reference to just how dangerous what they're doing is. Mm-hmm. Like, he mm-hmm. goes to prison because of this. And I don't think that that means that, like, individually these boys wield as much social power or anything like yeah. that. But just as a, like, overall picture. Do we know anything about these people as individuals? We do, but a lot of this is from testimony at his trial, mm-hmm. uh, at least some of which was obtained by intimidation by the prosecutors. Okay. Yep. So, like, they, like, threatened these young men into giving a deposition, and then they did. Some of them, I think, were just like, yeah, sure, but, mm-hmm. like... So, a question. Mm-hmm. Why is it that you can have gay sex with Oscar Wilde and then pull that out as blackmail material? Like, gay sex is a two-person activity. Why is that not trouble for the boy as well? I mean, I think because the argument is that, like, they were, like, exploited into it. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, they're okay. an underage sex worker, then... Yeah. yeah. It's worth saying that Alfred Taylor, the man who's kind of, like, organising mm. for them mm-hmm. to meet these boys, also goes to court over this. And the second of his three trials mm. is a joint trial with Alfred Taylor. It's that thing as well where, like, people are like, oh, you have to judge them by the morality of their time, not our time. And the morality of their time was like, he should go to prison. <laughs> yeah, it's like Which, the morality of their time made, yeah. made that fairly clear. Yeah, so, like, the general societal morals of their time were wrong about this. And then, like, as I established with the fact that if these boys were over 16, then he wouldn't have done a crime, apparently. Yeah. Mm. Like, according to modern English law, means still our laws are kind of bad and yeah. uh, in thinking about you know alright so do I like feel it, it's appropriate for us to do this episode my initial thought was like obviously because I don't consider like talking about a historical figure to be analogous to like condoning their actions no I mean like sure yes but yeah. I, I mean to like being a fan of them I think in mm-hmm. a way that some people sort of assume like what we do is yeah yeah do you know what I mean yeah We can't Um, only talk about the parts of history that we think are moral and appropriate. Yeah. And, like, it's just, in my experience, like, you know, having done a history degree and going to, like, history lectures Mm -hmm. when I wasn't, however... You know, like, you'd never be like, oh, we're going to, like, skip this emperor because they were morally abhorrent. Like, that's just completely foreign to that setting. Mm. But then I was sort of thinking that, like, well, there is a bit of a difference between just, like, generally history as a discipline and kind of queer history because queer historians do tend to be closer to it than Mm. just, like, general misc historians as a group. You know, and are often deliberately looking for role models and trying to form personal connections and things like that. But 
I also think you get this kind of thing then where you're making queer historical figures jump a hurdle in order to That's be acceptable true. to talk about that straight historical figures mm, don't have mm. to do. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can talk about any straight historical figure, but a queer historical figure, no, they have to be morally pure. Yeah, that's and a valid that's point. And that's not okay. But I just think it's kind of, like, disingenuous of us in the context of this podcast. Like, we can say, like, oh, like, we don't approve of Oscar Wilde necessarily because we're talking about him, but we still talk about all of these people in a very fond manner. Mm, yeah. You know, and I think that that's, like, sort of generally the way that it goes with queer people doing queer history. Yeah. And you need to kind of account for that different relationship to the history that you're discussing mm. instead of like just pretending it doesn't exist. So I think that, yeah, like it's a good thing to think about those things with, but also like that just kind of sucks for a yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think overall it actually is as difficult as it is to deal with. It's actually a pretty good encapsulation of a lot of the problems that come with trying to do queer history. Yeah. You know, where you're dealing with like different eras and conflicting feelings about just like homosexuality with people being kind of biased on like both ends of the spectrum and yeah, yeah, legal changes and stuff like that. And we're not going to reach a like nice conclusion about this on this yeah. podcast. We're like, not going to come out of it knowing our moral position on Oscar Wilde. Yeah, Oscar Wilde does do things that aren't having sex with teenage boys. Thankfully, <laughs> I understand he wrote some stuff. He did write some stuff in 1890. So we're going back a little bit. George Alexander, who was uh, an actor and the manager of the St. James Theatre, approached him and asked him to write a play. And Oscar agrees. George gives him £50 as a, like, advance on this play. Uh, and then Oscar takes it and doesn't write the play. <laughs> I feel like that's what ha- would happen if somebody gave me £50 as an advance on something. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Irene, I love you, but I would never give you £50 yeah. to write something Don't in do advance. Don't do it. Give it to me afterwards. <laughs> the deadline passes for when he's meant to have this play done, and time keeps passing, and eventually he offers to just give the money back. Mm-hmm. And wisely, George is like, no, no, I'll wait for the play. Mm-hmm. And eventually Oscar delivers him Lady Windermere's fan. Uh. And George says, this is great. I'll give you a thousand pounds for it. Oh, what? Okay. <laughs> one dodgy internet inflation calculator told me it was like 120,000 pounds in today's money. Probably isn't, but it's, you know, a lot. I remember in the previous episode, you mentioned that Oscar had written two plays that weren't very good. Yeah. Why does George Alexander think he can write a good play? Because he just wrote a really sensational book that everyone's into. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Or okay. into, like, slagging. So. Like, he can write, and the public I- knows this. Uh, also, his plays aren't, like, <laughs> boozy levels of terror. <laughs> no, they're not like awful. He just like, he was young and they really found his voice yet and then oh, tragedies, yeah. which ultimately I guess it turns out is an Oscar Wilde's ideal play genre. Like, there's some interest in them periodically. They're just not like, like he's about to write what people generally understand to be some of the best comedies in the English language. So, you know, like, bad by those standards is like pretty decent. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oscar goes, wow, that's a lot of money. I'm not going to take it. I'll take a percent instead so a percent of the earnings and he makes seven thousand pounds its first year which according to the same dodgy <laughs> google thing is eight hundred and thirty thousand pounds which is like two million dollars or something that 
It's a lot of money. That, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So Lady Windermere's fan opens to the public on February 20th, 1892. Oscar gives a speech and he's just the most about it. He is the most <laughs> about everything he's ever done. Yeah. yeah. So he comes and he like leans on the side of the stage and is like smoking a gold tip cigarette. <laughs> wow. And he says this like paragraph of stuff that I'm about to say. Um, I'm going to try and like maintain the italics that were in the version I read. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I have enjoyed this evening immensely. The actors have given us a charming rendering of a delightful play and your appreciation has been most intelligent. I congratulate you on the great success of your performance, which persuades me that you think almost as highly of the play as I do myself. And people are kind of like, I, I, you know, in Lord of the Rings, when I was Bilbo literally makes about to say, yes. Yes. <laughs> I thought of that also. Yeah, so like his friends are like, oh, bravo, Oscar, that was so witty. And everyone else is like, I'm kind of insulted. You're annoying. There's also conflicting accounts that make the rounds about other stuff that he said. Someone said that the speech included, it's perhaps not very proper to smoke in front of you, but it's not very proper to disturb me when I'm smoking. <laughs> So it's very, like, improper of him to smoke publicly on stage oh, okay, while he's, yeah. he's speaking to this crowd. And some read this as, like, a deliberate, calculated affront to Victorian propriety. And mm-hmm. others think that as a massive chain smoker, he was just too nervous to discard the cigarette. I mean, maybe it was a bit both. Maybe so. I mean, I think there was probably a healthy dose of, I just let this cigarette uh, go on then in there. Yeah. 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 He's also wearing a green carnation, as is one of the actors and some of his friends in the audience. This isn't something that people habitually wear. One of his friends in the audience who's been instructed to wear this carnation asked Oscar what it meant, and he replied, nothing whatever, but that is just what nobody will guess. (laughs) So everyone was like, what does it mean? What does it mean? (laughs) Um, It's been said that it symbolised homosexuality in Paris and that that's why they were wearing it, but this Mm -hmm. has never been documented. It's just assumed that, like, this is a gay thing, isn't it? And I guess it thereafter became a gay thing. So Is there an added like this is a gay thing and gay things come from France in there (laughs) maybe actually but also just like I don't know he was in France a lot yeah maybe because he was gay (laughs) (laughs) but yes this is the famous green carnation that you see around yeah yeah I mean, it's interesting, yeah, that, like, if we have two, like, gay flower symbols, it tends to be violence for women mm-hmm. and reincarnations for men, and that's after Sappho and Oscar Wilde. Yeah. yeah. So, like... They're fairly peak gay symbols. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like, you know, Oscar Wilde's on, like, Sappho levels. It took men a long time to get a flower compared to women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I guess, like, ancient Greek men would have been like, no, I'll stamp on that flower. I'm too manly for this. <laughs> I like how he deliberately wore the flower because it didn't mean anything, yeah. and then now I like know it means something. Yeah. So he writes another play, A Woman of No Importance, which is produced in 1893, and then a third, An Idle Husband, which comes out in January 1895. And then the last and generally regarded the best of his society comedies is written in July of 1894. He writes it in like three weeks, and it's called The Importance of Being Earnest. This has been called by more than one person the wittiest comedy in the English language. Okay, okay. Alice isn't, like, fully buying it. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of, like, other contenders where I can be like, nah, this one. Mm. I'm like, I'm not super across <laughs> theatre, frankly. Yeah, I'm also not super into comedies, frankly, because yeah. I find that they date very quickly. Yeah. But I don't feel like Oscars 
did. I would say, having watched The Importance of Being Earnest in preparation for this podcast, I'm sure there's, you know, a hundred things in there that I didn't get because I oh, didn't have a sure. social context. The Brighton line. Yeah. See? Yeah. <laughs> but there are enough things in there that I did get that yeah. it's still a very good yeah. comedy. And I don't know if in like... 200 years if it'll make even less sense and it will stop working as a play. Mm. I don't know. A lot of it is like very stock comedy like plot building blocks with just yeah. like very witty dialogue on top. So the play centers on Jack Worthing who is played by Paul McGann in one version. <laughs> the version that I watched the last best week. Doctor. Although I haven't seen the new one yet. And Jack Worthing in the first part of the play admits to his friend Algernon that he has a double identity playing the role of the serious Jack in the country for the benefit of his ward Cecily and coming to London to be the libertine Ernest. And he gets away with it by pretending that he has this like reckless and morally younger brother called Ernest and he has to go and like deal with everything he's doing <laughs> fairly regularly. Algernon admits that he has a similar ruse and <laughs> he pretends to have a sick friend Bunbury who lives in the countryside so that whenever he has to go to a boring dinner party he can instead go out to the countryside. <laughs> in reality, Jack doesn't actually know his true identity because he was left in a handbag at a train station as a baby. Jack proposes to Algernon's cousin Gwendolyn and she accepts. She is delighted because she's always wanted to marry a man named Ernest and nothing else, which is a problem. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Meanwhile, Algernon goes to Jack's country house and meets and falls in love with his ward Cecily, pretending to be Jack's brother Ernest. She agrees to marry him because she wishes to marry a man named Ernest, which is a problem. Yes. And then a farcical comedy follows in which the characters sort of bumble about and move towards finding out who everyone really is and the couples towards being able to marry who they want to. My first experience of it was my friend was in it. Oh, and I did her. Oh I did her, I learned her lines with her when I was in like middle of high school. I was probably like fourteen, and mm. I just didn't have a clear enough idea of what things were like normal behavior in nineteenth century society <laughs> and what things were not to figure out whether it was funny or not. I just had no idea whether wanting to marry a man named Ernest was a joke or not. <laughs> I was like, the whole thing just flew over my head. Do you remember who your friend played? I think that was Gwendolyn. Okay. So I assume you had to listen to, I've always wanted to marry a man named Ernest and be like, yes, I am Ernest. What the hell is going on? <laughs> yes. And like I said, I couldn't quite tell whether this was a normal thing to think. In it like, is not. Late 19th century society. It's poking fun at marriage as an institution. In which like, I totally see now, but at the time I just had no idea which yes. parts were jokes and which parts were not. Mm. I was surprised because I read it in high school as well, and I was probably about like 14 or 15, and I pretty much had not thought about this play in the intervening like yeah. over 10 years. And then I watched it the other day and I was like, I remember like every line in this play. Yeah. Like it's very memorable. It's very well written. It mm. sticks with you. A lot of I... his really famous quotes come from his plays. So from this play, and I can't remember word for word, is the whole like, oh, I always bring my diary with me. Someone has to have something sensational to read on the train, which is often just attributed to like Oscar Wilde, but it's, you know, from a play. So mm. yeah. So my big theory about this play is that if you sit down and read it as a book, you're actually doing it an immense disservice. I feel like mm. in order to really enjoy it, you have to see it performed and ideally like live. I think you're definitely right. And I think this is true of all plays, but probably 
much more to a comedy. Like, you have mm. to see them live. Yeah, and I think, like, not only seeing them live, but seeing them in a room with other people who are also seeing the play mm. is important. I think that just, like, seeing comedy in a communal setting is just a much better experience. Yeah. And also, like, the main reason I think that you need to see it live is because the dialogue is the absolute heart of this play, mm. and seeing someone perform the dialogue well is so much different than reading the dialogue. Yeah. So his society plays are quite different to anything that he's written previously. Like, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray is about, like, a man's soul being rendered in two. And these are quite, like, on the surface at least, very light, and they're actually criticised at the time for being very, like, trivial and empty and having no message and just being witty. Mm -hmm. But they're generally regarded now to be more critical than they appear. They actually have similar themes to his other writings. So to take the example of the importance of being earnest in Dorian Gray, they have the same themes of double and hidden identities mm-hmm. as Dorian Gray, mm-hmm. except here they are employed so that the characters can get about in the countryside and not have to go to a boring dinner. Vice and gluttony are also explored, but through Algernon's insatiable desire for cucumber <laughs> sandwiches. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> I knew that part was funny. Yeah, yeah, that part was fun. Mm. So this is understood by some scholars as him essentially painting this veneer of triviality over what he's trying to explore in his plays and through couching them in this, not only in comedy, but in a very like rapid fire comedy, he can just sort of like quietly subvert social norms and criticize social institutions without people really noticing what they're laughing at Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And he's very, very good at this. He excels at this kind of writing and his plays are immensely popular and Oscar finds mainstream acclaim. Good job, Oscar. So if you thought Alfred Douglas was bad, you should meet Alfred Douglas's father. Oh, I even, yeah, I knew he was bad already. He's quite awful. Two facts about this man. Yeah. One is that he... Boxing and homophobia. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Those are the facts. Yeah. So the Marquess of Queensbury, John Sholto Douglas, is homophobic and likes boxing. (laughs) So we won't do too much. Two key facts. He lends his name to the Queensbury rules, which are the basis of modern boxing, which he endorsed but did not come up with. And two, he hated his son and his son's relationship with Oscar Wilde. Alfred and Oscar are having lunch one day and they happen to bump into Alfred's father in the same restaurant and so he is invited to sit and have lunch with them. And in this first meeting, Oscar actually manages to charm him. Um, Mm -hmm. They have a mutual interest in fishing uh, (laughs) and also Oscar is just generally quite charming. However, the next time they bump into him, this is worn off and he makes it clear that Alfred is going to be disowned if he keeps seeing Oscar. He wrote to his son, quote, I'm not going to try and analyze this intimacy and I make no charge, but to my mind to pose as a thing is as bad as to be it. With my own eyes, I saw you both in the most loathsome and disgusting relationship as expressed by your manner and expression. Okay. He's basically saying, I don't even care if you are gay, but it looks gay and that's bad enough. Yeah. Bosie, in response to this, telegraphs back, what a funny little man you are. (laughs) Rosie seems to kind of like perversely quite enjoy this conflict. Like he hates his father and making his father mad is fine to him. Yeah. Uh, he's also not too worried about losing financial support because Oscar is here. Oscar recalled of Bosie's feelings about this time in their lives. The prospect of a battle in which you would be safe delighted you. I never remember you in higher spirits than you were for the rest of that season. <laughs> Oscar's not having a good time though. He's very stressed. He's very tired. Queensbury shows up at Oscar's home screaming threats. 
Uh, he plans to show up and make a scene at the premiere of the importance of being earnest and they find out that this is going to happen and it's not allowed in. And he kind of like stands outside the theater door, like ranting and raving and like throws the rotten vegetables he has brought at the door. I don't actually okay. know if they were rotten. I made that part off, but they're definitely vegetables. <laughs> and I feel like you don't throw perfectly good vegetables at the theater <laughs> door. No. And so this isn't acceptable to like just have in the background of your life. And Oscar starts mm-hmm. to speak with his solicitor about if anything can be done. On February 28th, Oscar goes to the Albemarle Club to get his mail and he is handed an envelope with a calling card left 10 days earlier by Queensbury, reading maybe to Oscar Wilde, posing as a somdomite, which is a typo. Shout out to somdomite.tumblr.com. <laughs> I mean, it's not truly a typo. It's a... It's a... Whatever. A, sorry. I will not apologize for anachronisms. It's a misspelling of the word sodomite. In reality, like, the handwriting's really bad, and we're not 100% sure what it said, but this is what they said it said in court, so, like... Having, like, seen pictures of this in my life, I feel like somdomite, at least, is pretty clear. Yeah, like, yeah, that's definitely there, but... Posing as, like, you could read that as anything. Like, yeah. It's just kind of a scroll. It's also been read as, like, punce and sodomite, but, like, the, the thing is that if they say it's posing as when they go to court he doesn't have to prove that he's a sodomite he just has to prove that he's kind of like publicly acting like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this card is evidence of probable libel and so oscar now has a decision to make should they go to court over this and he writes to robbie i don't see anything now but a criminal prosecution my whole life seems ruined by this man the Tower of Ivory is assailed by the foul thing. On the sand is my life spilt. So he definitely just, like, talks like this. I know I said before that, you know, that letter that he wrote to Bosey was very performative. But, you know, I feel like this is a time in your life when you're less likely to be performative. And he still talks like this. So maybe that letter was just this how he was. Yeah. And by all accounts, he, like, talked like that as well. I cannot picture mm. how this would have been. Like, people said, like, it would seem like he had prepared a statement, but there's no way he could have. Yeah. Like, he would just say things off the top of his head that seemed like he'd, like, spent hours writing them out. Mm. He was just, mm. like, very good words. Imagine if that person worked in, like, a call centre. <laughs> just got them on the phone. <laughs> you would buy everything. <laughs> that would be a great skit. It's like famous writers working at, like, Medicare or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I am thinking about this when I call Medicare tomorrow. Robbie Ross and other friends of his told him, tear the card up, forget about it, go to Paris. Like, yeah, this is dangerous. And Oscar Wilde will not. Okay. On the 1st of March, he swears out a warrant for the arrest of Queensbury on the charge of libel. He is given a legal advisor and he tells him a bunch of lies about how there's no truth to Queensbury's claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, Queensbury has to enter a plea of justification and he enters 15 counts of gross indecency, 12 about boys he's had sex with and 3 about immorality in his writing. Alright, I don't know what Oscar thought would happen here. That's a decent comment. Yeah, <laughs> like... So, so the first of three trials that we're about to go through opened uh, at the Old Bailey on the 3rd of April, 1895, and despite the fact that Oscar Wilde is clearly the prosecutor in this case, he is clearly the one on trial, he had to, like, verbally remind the court, like, I'm the prosecutor in this case, and they were kind of like, uh, yeah. are you though? You should have just gone to Paris. He, yeah. Probably should have. They go over evidence that we've essentially already discussed. They talk about that letter that we talked about um, ah, yes. Oscar writing to Bosie. They broke into Alfred Taylor's lodgings. And they took the addresses of young men that he'd introduced Oscar to, and then they found them and threatened them into testifying. I was wondering when you said that, like, they 
question these young men how on earth they found them. Mm, but yeah. that's the answer, breaking and entering. And it seems like Oscar didn't really expect them to have gone to all of this, like, you know, PI levels of investigation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. found all of this evidence and isn't really prepared to answer the questions about this kind of thing. Yep. You know, like saying, like, hey, we have this testimony from a young man who says that you had sex with them. It's kind of like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. um, huh. <laughs> He's asked, for example, about a servant at a house where Bosie had rooms called Walter Granger, uh, and is asked if he ever kissed this young man, and Oscar foolishly replies, oh dear, no, he was a peculiarly plain boy. He was unfortunately extremely ugly. I pitied him for it. And so his press, like, well, like, did you not kiss him because he wasn't attractive? And Oscar has to kind of try and avoid the obvious implications of what he just said, which is yeah. that he would have kissed him, but unfortunately he was ugly, so he didn't. Oscar. And Oscar's lawyer doesn't really have any rebuttal for any of this. He has to sort of realize in court that his client has told a lot of very serious lies. Yeah. Queensbury is found not guilty. Wilde, therefore, publicly has to accept that Queensbury was entitled to call him a posing sodomite or whatever it said in the public interest. And his only real hope now is to leave the country before he's arrested. He doesn't go. He waits in his hotel room until men from Scotland Yard come and arrest him. And on the 26th of April, he re-enters the courtroom, this time as a prisoner charged with a commission of acts of gross indecency in private with members of his own sex. So some background to uh, homosexuality in the law at the time. From the 16th century to the early 1800s, sodomy was a capital crime. Executions ended in 1836, and sodomy was removed from a list of capital crimes in 1861. It's still a crime, though. Sodomy was this kind of, like, weird, vague category that encompassed any kind of, like, deviant, non-procreative sex. So in 1854, Sir George Richards, who was a political economist, used the term to speak out against birth control. Mm -hmm. In 1885, the Criminal Law Amendment Act passed, which included Section 11, the Lubbershire Amendment. We've spoken about it before on our episode on whether Queen Victoria believed in lesbians or not. You can Uh, go and listen to it. And this widened the definition of illegal sex acts between men to the kind of catch-all term gross indecency, basically making any kind of sexual activity between men illegal. Uh, It also lowered the penalty from life in prison to maximum two years with or without hard labour, which sounds like a good thing but in practice it meant that it's far easier to convict men under this Uh, because like sending someone to prison for two years is less of an intense thing to do for life but also Mm. to be clear two years in prison especially with hard labor in this day and age will kill you yeah yeah i understand that previously you also had to prove that they had ejaculated during sex Oh, really? Yeah, so um, yeah. basically, like, yeah, you needed to have, like, I think multiple witnesses and things, and now it's just very vague. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was previously very hard to convict people, and it suddenly became a lot easier. Yes. And because it's so easy to convict people now, you need so little evidence, it became known as the Blackmailer's Charter. So this is the law that he's about to be tried under, just for some, like, flavor test. <laughs> Why didn't he leave the country? Yeah. Well, that's the question. That is the question. Yeah. (laughs) That is one of the big questions about this, and people have kind of constructed various different 
stories around how they understand Oscar Wilde. And it very much does get into these questions of how we understand Oscar Wilde, specifically of like how, not how political a figure do we think he is, because he's a political figure. Mm -hmm. He just is. But how like deliberately political he wanted to be. Uh, Okay, so whether he was like, I'm going to make a public stand about whether or not I should go to prison for this rather than just run away. Yeah, okay. So many specifically gay historians you know people who've been interested in Oscar Wilde because of his sexuality have painted him not only as a martyr for like essentially a burgeoning gay rights movement but also as a deliberate one so Neil McKenna for example who is a journalist who wrote a very dodgy book uh said he had chosen to go to prison rather than repudiate his love for Bozy and his love for men. I was going to ask whether you were suggesting that we read him as a kind of proto-queer activist, which seems a little too good to be true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's an option, and I believe it, but we don't have any evidence either way, do we? Um, I mean, we don't have, like, a clearly written, like, manifesto yeah, from him. yeah. Uh, on this basis but, but he must speak in court right well, yeah he does yeah. other scholars have pointed to other potential reasons why he didn't run alfred douglas encouraged him to see this through okay. and obviously alfred douglas has sway over him specifically kind of being like don't be a coward i mean what? we established that alfred douglas likes to fight his father and he may see this as an extension of that yeah look i don't feel like i have a great handle on alfred douglas's mind frankly all right i won't ask the uh, question so like you can ask me to explain him but like i don't get him i i definitely was like i'm never doing an episode on alfred douglas i hate him and i almost want to just because i'm like what is this man <laughs> you know like they were yeah. really in love like clearly has like some kind of redeeming personality yeah yeah like he has to Others have just sort of generally pointed to, like, less of a deliberate, I'm going to make a stand for gay men, and more of a, like, I'm sick of being hounded for this, and I'm just not doing it anymore. Yeah. 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 Which is different. It's different, but also, like, both can coexist. It's also, I think, a bit kind of simplistic to paint it as, like, if he had run away, like... So Neil McKenna says that he stayed and chose not to repudiate his love for men, kind of implying that if he'd left, he'd have been doing that, I guess. Yeah. If he'd run away, he could have just, like, lived in Paris and been fine. Okay. But I'm not really clear, like, what kind of statement that makes about homosexuality. If he runs away, that's not really the same as him being like, no, I'm totally not a homosexual. What are you talking about? Yeah, that doesn't... That's just him leaving so he doesn't get prosecuted. And also, in going to court, he does say, I didn't do this yeah like he he doesn't go into court and be like i did everything i'm accused of and and there's nothing wrong with it he does say something very famous that Mm -hmm. has been interpreted as him saying exactly that though so we mentioned earlier alfred douglas's famous line about the love that dare not speak its name Mm -hmm. and in court he's asked what that means and he says this i edited this down a little bit to be clear but i left a bunch of it because i thought it was necessary the love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between david and jonathan such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man. When the elder man has intellect and the younger man has all the joy, hope and glamour of life before him. That it should be 
so, the world does not understand. The world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. Okay, so I think there are two ways of reading that, basically. I can't think of a second, to be honest. That certainly sounds like he's saying, yeah, the love that dare not speak its name that he was talking about. Yeah, it's gay love and it's great. There is a differentiation between this and what he's charged with. Okay. uh, In that he repeatedly is happy to kind of stress this love between men, but he's never saying that it's sexual. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The second reading is in this day and age, we misinterpret this pure intellectual relationship between an older mentor and a younger man as this immoral sexual thing, which is Mm. not what it is. And I think that he is having to walk this very fine line between wanting to be able to just publicly say like, yeah, this is what I've been doing with my life and there's nothing wrong with it and having to kind of negotiate with what society will allow because his life is very literally on the line. Yeah. And I think kind of like it's easy to oversimplify that in constructing him as a martyr for gay rights. Mm. I reminded of what you said about his plays of him like writing something that seems just very, you know, shallow and witty and actually being more of a critique of society than the audience might realize at first glance. Like a paragraph like that where there's two ways to read it, Mm. you can see that as he's saying what he can get away with. So he's saying... I'm gay and there's nothing wrong with that and that has always been a good and beautiful thing that has existed. Or he could be saying, we didn't have sex. Why are you reading this pure intellectual relationship as sex? Yeah. yeah. Just quickly on the note of his like being read as being like very frivolous and empty and so forth. This is often seen as something that's like in opposition to him potentially being an important political figure. But Nonakawa, one of the biographers I read, understands this very frivolity as being very, very political um, mm. and understanding it as being like a deliberate, constructed commitment to being frivolous as a weapon against a society that puts emphasis on being very, very serious and very earnest. Mm. Mm. I mean, I think that fits in with the whole aesthetic movement of like, you know, does art have to have a moral or mm, things just be beautiful? Like, yeah, that yeah. is a valid mm. argument that lines up with other beliefs we know he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the rest of the trial essentially goes over similar evidence. The jury deliberates for three hours and they can't all agree, so another trial is held and again, essentially the same evidence has gone over. The jury deliberates for two hours and finds him guilty this time. During sentencing, the judge declared, people who can do these things must be dead to all sense of shame and one cannot hope to produce any effect upon them. It is the worst case I have ever tried. That you, Wilde, have been the centre of a circle of extensive corruption of the most hideous kind among young men. It is equally impossible to doubt. And he sentences him to the maximum penalty, two years with hard labour. In response, Oscar calls out, and I, may I say nothing my lord and the judge gestures for him to be taken away and he is taken away so the public obviously react with abhorrence to this his income is at its peak at this time his work is at its most popular and he's sleeping on a prison cot his name is taken off the playbills but his plays keep going for a little while and then they're closed Mm -hmm. his children are taken out of school and sent overseas with a governess Constance and the children are soon going to change their last name part of the reason why public reaction is so strong is because of other scandals that have taken place recently concerning homosexuality. So you have the scandal of Bolton and Park. Bolton and Park were both assigned to male at birth. One day we'll do an episode of them and I'll actually have thoughts about what their gender was, but for now that's what I'll say. 
and they like dressed as women publicly a lot of the time and they were arrested and like you know mm-hmm. there was a big scandal over the fact that they'd been having sex with men there was also the Cleveland Street scandal in which a bunch of like relatively high up men were found to have been frequenting a brothel mm-hmm. uh, that had male sex workers working at it so basically there's this increasing awareness and increasing tide of fear about homosexuality in the English public we discussed in the previous episode a little bit about how Victorian society had really deep fears about masculinity being encroached on and representing mm-hmm. a threat to the state. I'm reminded of our own homosexuality episode. Yeah, I mean, basically. I'm reminded of a video that one of my conservative American friends posted on Facebook like yesterday. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. I hate this. You're like a, quite a historical grab bag there of time. Yeah. <laughs> This is also happening at a time when this understanding of homosexuality as being a sin and like a religious concern is giving way to newer frameworks of like criminology and pathology and psychology and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of like how to keg of social change and social anxiety and then also Oscar Wilde is really famous and Mm -hmm. so it results in this defining moment of like late 19th century thought on how sexuality is viewed and how it can be publicly regulated. Mm -hmm. And it's been argued that the late 19th century is when the homosexual as an identity category emerges. So you don't just have like, you know, gay acts now. You have gays. The Wild Trials being like an example of this formation and action and also something that influenced this category emerging, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to get too into the debate if this is really when like gay identity came about, because that's just like a whole thing. And one day we'll have an episode and be like so Foucault, I guess. But not today. <laughs> the historian Jeffrey Weeks argues that this trial was so publicized that it created a public image of the homosexual and a moral about what could happen to him at the same time. As well as arguing that, like, if you create a public image of a minority group, you're not just making that available for people to hate, you're making it available for people to identify with. And, you know, that's interesting and difficult to prove either way I feel but I did want to quickly give a longish quote from the sexologist Havelock Ellis who was a contemporary of Oscar Wilde and who wrote in volume two of his studies in the psychology of sex quote the Oscar Wilde trial with its wide publicity and the fundamental nature of the questions it suggested appears to have generally contributed to give definiteness and self-consciousness to the manifestations of homosexuality and to have aroused inverts to take up a definite attitude one correspondent writes so this is a gay man that is right Up to the time of the Oscar Wilde trial, I had not known what the condition of the law was. Reviewing the results of the trial as a whole, it doubtless did incalculable harm, and it intensified our national vice of hypocrisy. But I think it also may have done some good in that it made those who, like myself, have thought and experienced deeply in the matter, and these must be no small few, ready to strike a blow when the time comes for what we deem to be right, honourable, and clean. So it is being perceived that way by at least some people at the time. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say that. Those were some fairly clear primary sources. So that's interesting. Yeah. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back in a moment. Once again, before we continue, I just wanted to say another quick word about Studio, who are our sponsor for this episode. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, Studio makes quality headphones, which are very beautiful and have excellent sound quality. They make a variety of products. If you like headphones or earphones, wireless or with wires, they'll have something for you. So I encourage you to head over to their website, studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com. And if you want to purchase anything there, you can use the promo code QueerAsFact, all one word, to get 15% off. So thank you to Studio. And now back to the episode. Oscar is taken to Pentonville Prison and put into a small cell. He sleeps at first on a bed that doesn't have a mattress. 
just for general cruelty. Mm. Uh, his cell only has the necessities, obviously, and it's inspected daily. And if anything is, like, slightly out of the place they've arbitrarily decided it has to be in, he's punished. The food is awful to the extent that diarrhea is endemic and everyone is constantly sick. He loses 22 pounds wow, okay. very quickly. Wait. It's like 10 kilos. He's moved to Wandsworth Prison, which is worse. There he's put on a treadmill to grind flour for six hours a day in intervals of 20 minutes on treadmill, five minutes rest. Within three days of this, he's sick enough that he has to be taken to the infirmary. After that, he's given labor to do in his room instead. He has to pick four pounds of oakum a day. So what this is, is like picking rope apart into strands, basically. Oh, uh, yeah, yep. yeah. And he does this until his hands bleed his hands are scarred after this wow yeah so yeah like prison is just state sanctioned constant daily abuse for no real reason after three months he's entitled to receive and send one letter and receive one visitor he has visitors four times a year for 20 minutes both parties are locked in wooden boxes a few feet apart from each other and there's a guard there on the 20th of november 1895 he's transferred to reading jail it's a bit nicer there. he works in the garden and he works in the library putting wrappers on the books he is transported there publicly by train in his prison uniform and he's left to wait on the platform for half an hour during which the public realizes it's oscar wilde and a crowd forms around him and they jeer and just like berate him for half an hour until he's taken away his hair is cut when he arrives there and he cries pleading with him saying must it be cut you don't know what it means to me but it is cut while he's there the warden changes to a better man and four months before he is set to leave prison he's allowed to have writing materials in his cell he's allowed to write a letter mm-hmm. and the thing about a letter is there is no like set length that a letter can have uh, and also if a prisoner doesn't finish a letter they're allowed to take it with them so he writes a 55,000 word letter to Alfred Douglas this is known as De Profundus and it's essentially this very like cathartic outpouring of Oscar's version of their relationship and like how it went from Oscar's point of view and all of the wrongs that he feels were done to him by Bozy during the course of the last few years that sounds like quite a like harrowing letter, honestly. Yeah. Structurally, it is a bit of a mess, which is excusable because after each page was written, it was taken away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think he got to see bits of it sometimes and he kind of could revise a little bit. But overall, no, it's just kind of like written. Wow. Yeah. Wonder. But it's still regarded as being a very good work of prose. It's very richly written, as you can imagine. Like we've talked a lot about how Oscar Wilde's prose is just the most at all times. Yeah. Um, People have observed, and I agree, that it evokes the feeling that you're being spoken to by him instead of that you're just, like, reading something. He has this very, like, direct address sort of tone that he uses because he's, you know, directly addressing Alfred Douglas. It's also notably different from other writing that he has, which is often flippant or, like, deliberately very constructed and, like, very witty. You know, it's just this urgent, very heartfelt, emotional tone. And it's interesting to read if you're interested in Moscow Wilde just for that, Mm. So I just wanted to read a quote from the writer Colin Toybin in an article that he wrote for The Guardian just about why De Profundis is great. So he said, De Profundis has neither the informality of a personal letter nor the distilled sound of a piece of imaginative writing. Its seductive, hurt, and passionate tone places it in a category of its own. In all its urgency and ambiguous eloquence, it remains one of the greatest and most complex love letters ever written. 
He leaves jail on the 18th of May, 1897, and is handed De Profundis on the way out. He leaves pretty much immediately for Paris. He never goes back to England again. Reasonable. Yeah. Robbie Ross is waiting for him there, and when he arrives, he gives Robbie De Profundis with the intention that Robbie will make a copy and then send Bosey the original. But instead, Robbie does the reverse, sending him the copy, because he thinks that Bosey would destroy it, which he probably would have. Yeah. He doesn't do a great deal with the remaining few years of his life. Prison has severely damaged him physically and mentally, Um, Mm -hmm. so he has a dependence on alcohol to sleep. He will compulsively organize his belongings, Mm -hmm. you know, because he's been trained into doing that at fear of punishment. Yeah. He gets exhausted very, very easily by, like, writing a letter or Mm -hmm. reading a difficult passage of a book, and uh, he's so used to being isolated and quiet that if someone speaks to him unexpectedly, it really startles him. He's also very, very poor. He has a little bit of money that Robbie Ross and other friends have kind of like collected together for him to sort of establish himself on and Constance sends him a little bit of money as an allowance but she's deliberately sending him very little because she doesn't want him to go back to living a lavish lifestyle. For some time he doesn't see Bozy. He intermittently just does not want to, Mm -hmm. fearing the influence that Bosie had over him and not wanting that to return to his life. And also both of their money is conditional on not seeing the other one. He wrote, to be with him would be to return to the hell from which I do not think I have been released. I hope never to see him again. But nevertheless, perhaps as you would expect, they Mm -hmm. do eventually reunite in August of 1897. Bosie recalled that Oscar cried when they met and that they walked around arm in arm all day and were happy and had a great time. And just like that, Oscar is back in love, at least for a little while. He wrote that he thought that he could make art again if he was with Bosey. He said that, quote, you can really recreate in me that energy and sense of joyous power on which art depends. Everyone is furious with me for going back to you, but they don't understand us. And he also wrote to Bosey, begging him to, quote, remake my ruined life for me. He writes tersely to Robbie Ross saying, yes, I saw Bosey, and of course I love him as I always did, with a sense of tragedy and ruin. So it kind of feels like inevitable that they gravitate back to each other but like you know obviously it's not as if all the problems in their relationship are just gonna have disappeared yeah Uh, yeah. and ultimately their relationship doesn't work this isn't a happy ever after ending it's still tumultuous Bosie's still spending his money Constance and Bosie's mother eventually stop sending money when they learn that they're living together and soon enough Bosie leaves and they don't see each other again at this point I'm gonna just like sum up uh, a few things from the rest of Bosie's life out of interest and dislike <laughs> so Bosie doesn't die until 1945 at the age of 74. So recent. I have known people who have been alive at the same time as this man. Mm, yeah, I mean, he is like a reasonable amount younger than him and also like Oscar dies pretty young, all things considered. And mm, yeah. Alfred Douglas lives a reasonable span. Uh, he does get married as well to a woman called Olive Custance. She was bisexual and she'd been in a relationship with Natalie Clifford Barney, who is a very famous lesbian. Mm. And Natalie Clifford Barney had also been in a relationship with Dolly Wilde, who was also <laughs> Oscar Wilde's lesbian niece. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so some fun facts there for you. There's some people who do episodes on one day. He also came, as we hinted right at the start of the episode, to repudiate Wilde. He disavowed their relationship. He said in a court case once later that, quote, I think Wilde had a diabolical influence on everyone he met. I think he is the greatest force for evil that has appeared in Europe during the last 350 years. Wow. He wow. was the agent of the devil in every every possible way. He was a man whose whole objective in life was to attack and to smear at virtue and to undermine it in every way by every possible means, sexually and otherwise. 
So there's that. He kind of later in life softened a bit on that again, but like Mm -hmm. generally he moves on from the time in his life when he's with Oscar Wilde and he just, yeah, is kind of terrible about it. To some extent he might have to be as a kind of self-defense Yeah, that's fair enough. I feel like that you could have stopped before like the greatest (laughs) of evil in the world, but that's certainly true. He also founded a deeply anti-Semitic magazine which wrote articles on Jewish peril and helped spread the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is a fraudulent fake text that pretends to be written by like the Jewish elders who are trying to take over the world banking system or whatever. Right, yeah. uh, so, you know, like, screw you, Alfred. <laughs> The magazine has, like, you know, like, oh, this new political guy on the scene seems pretty good, comma, Hitler, full stop. <laughs> like, he, anyway, he's in, like, a whole bunch of libel cases. On his Wikipedia page, which, to be clear, I didn't use it as a source, um, <laughs> there's a, like, heading that is just libel cases. <laughs> well, okay. okay. Uh, Wait, is this libel he's being accused of libel? Uh, like, I think both, to be honest. There, there is okay. one case where he instigates legal action against a newspaper because he had thought that he was dead and I posted a really awful obituary of him. <laughs> I kind of love that though. Oh, yeah, that is kind of funny. He eventually goes to prison himself for libeling Winston Churchill. <laughs> Do you know what he said about Winston Churchill? Oh, uh, yeah, more anti Semitism. Uh, uh, Winston okay. Churchill's not Jewish, but he claims, I don't have this in front of me, he claims, I don't know why I don't think we'd go into this, he claims that Winston Churchill accepted a bribe from a German banker or some kind of financial figure to write a fake report of a battle and I don't know exactly how this was meant to work because I don't understand politics or money but like this would result in like stocks plummeting or something which meant that like a shadowy cabal of Jewish bankers could like buy them up really cheap oh I see Um, I see I see and like that's not true no so prison for you friend Uh, so he goes to prison and you know that was not not deserved and he comes out of prison and yeah eventually he dies okay that was a grab bag of facts for you that was a grab bag of facts (laughs) yeah maybe Uh, we'll do the episode but maybe that's like all the stuff that I would want to talk about out of it not a great man no no to return to Oscar Wilde he never really writes again he doesn't have his audience anymore and he doesn't Mm -hmm. really have any energy the only things that he does write of any note in his post-prison years are two letters to the Daily Chronicle condemning the prison system and pleading for reform, and also the Ballad of Reading Jail, which is also a criticism of the prison system. He wrote it about the death of a fellow prisoner, Charles Thomas Woodridge, who had been hanged on 7th of July 1896 for killing his wife. He published it under the name C33, which was his like prison number. Yeah. It's a really stark look at the realities of the prison system in an attempt to contribute to the debate on penal reform which you know he was also taking part in through letter writing it's full of very very evocative imagery as you would expect mm-hmm. from Wild. it's also got this like quite repetitive meter and uses refrain in a way that has been said to evoke the feeling of the repetitive grind of prison life and of meaningless prison work it's generally regarded quite highly. It's one of his most popular works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the ones that tends to be cited. Like, reading articles about him when people kind of mention, like, his big works, in my experience, they tend to mention Dorian Gray, The Importance of Being Earnest, and The Ballad of Reading Jail. 
So 1900 comes with little fanfare. He's living in a modest hotel, then it's kind of like hand-to-mouth, and he becomes quite ill. Elman claims that this is syphilis and that he's had it for decades, and I mention this only really to dismiss it. There's no real evidence for this. Um, Mm -hmm. He'll kind of claim that, like, oh, he had this symptom, which is, like, perfectly in line with syphilis, and, like, no, it's not. That's not how syphilis works. Oh, okay. So, like, I just wanted to mention that because people are like, oh, he died of syphilis, and I will not be correct on this. He is bedridden with this illness that isn't syphilis. Sometimes he is delirious. While he's in this state, he's baptized into the Catholic Church on his deathbed. By his choice or somebody uh, else's? So this is something that he's kind of flirted with throughout his life but never committed to. And Robbie Ross, I think, calls a priest and then like he's asked if he wants to convert. Like he can't really speak, but he like raises a hand in consent. So he was Anglican before this, I assume? Yeah. Okay. He considered converting in college. In, like, while he was at Oxford, and his dad was like, I will be disowning you if you do that. During the last few days of his life, he had made a joke to visitors that he was fighting a duel to the death with his wallpaper. This is often cited in his last words that, like, mm-hmm. either the wallpaper goes or I do, but mm-hmm. uh, there aren't any recorded last words. He was very ill at this point and likely wasn't in any state to make any, mm-hmm. uh, and he passed away on November 30th. The funeral is on the 2nd of December. It's quite cheap. Uh, he's buried with a simple headstone. Nine years later, when he has raised some funds, Robbie Ross arranges for him to be moved to Pelachase Cemetery. The sculptor Jacob Epstein creates this very distinctive statue for his gravestone. It's this quiet, like, angular sculpture of a winged figure. It's inspired by the figure of the Sphinx. Oscar Wilde has a poem about a Sphinx. The inscription on it is from the Ballad of Reading Jail, and it reads, An alien tears will fill for him, pity's long broken urn, for his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. Robbie Ross dies in 1918, and his ashes, he wants them to be placed in a special compartment in Oscar Wilde's tomb that he has had made there. Mm-hmm. This is done, but not until after Bosey passes away. So by visiting Oscar Wilde's grave, you're just kind of inherently visiting Robbie Ross's. I mean, like, I don't have a problem with this, but it's kind of weird. Yeah. For many years, there was a tradition of kissing Oscar Wilde's grave with lipstick on, and it was covered in these kiss marks. And this was seen as a quite a big problem by the people who looked after it, because mm-hmm. it damaged the stone. And that's a debate, but it was considered to be a problem to the Degree that Ireland paid for it to be cleaned and surrounded in glass in 2011. So now people kiss the glass instead and it's still covered in kiss marks. I thought about this and I think that that was a good solution. That seems like a reasonable compromise, yeah. Yeah, like they're still letting you kiss something, you visit the grave and you still kiss like as close to the grave as you can reasonably get. I was there at the start of last year and people still kiss it. They're just bold. There's not many of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mentioned in the first episode that I got super into Oscar Wilde when I was like 13 and the way mm-hmm. that like gay teenagers do. And I think that one of you asked me if I like liked him less after this. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, but I think I definitely do like him differently mm. in that it's, it's just such a rich history and I think mm-hmm. that he's just such a complicated mm. man. And there's just so many moments in his life that you can sort of like take and analyze and kind of try to find out what sort of person he is. And I I kind of enjoy the fact that our episodes on him have in no way done him justice. Yeah, mm. yeah. There's just so much more. So go out there, read one of the four kind of bad biographies <laughs> that I've read. Read them all, read his works. 
I hope that this was enjoyable, even though it barely scratched the surface. With that, we have been Queer as Fact. This one was long. Thank you for being here. <laughs> if this wasn't enough for you, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. We sometimes review the ends of episodes, and this episode's too long, so we're not doing it, but we will get back to doing it next time, just so... We haven't forgotten you. Yeah, we haven't forgotten you. Just in case the highlight of the episode for anyone is hearing us read out other people's like <laughs> iTunes comments. Um, just a reminder that we are having a break in November, partially to write novels, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be a chill fun time. But we will be back on the 1st of December when we'll be talking about the British musician and the frontman of the band Queen, Freddie Mercury. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you then.